You're listening to the Local Open Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath. Today, we're talking with Ivan Bodley, a.k.a. Funk Boy. If you like funk music, you will love this episode. This is One Cool Cat. Ivan has a book available on Amazon entitled, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. We'll be talking about the book along with his musical roots, too. Before his career as a working-class rock star, Ivan worked for a major record label as a publicist and has eight platinum and multi-platinum records that he's contributed to directly. But who's counting? These include projects with Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, Michael Jackson and Bad, Luther Vandross, even Weir Al Yankovic and his platinum project, Fat. That was a parody of Michael Jackson's big hit. How ironic that Ivan touched both of those. As a performer, he's played on two Grammy-nominated records with Pete Seeger and Raphael Cruz. And he's brought four of his original funk tunes that we get to listen to and get the backstories to each. Let's bring Ivan in. Hey, and we have with us Ivan Bodley. How are you doing, Ivan? I'm great, Tim. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, uh, we uh, we sort of came across each other. I think you reached out to me first on a uh, application called Podmatch, which uh, worked really well for us. I got back with you and and this thing came together pretty quickly, uh, as I recall. Uh, not a whole lot of obstacles here to pull us together. No, I did. I, I reached out. I told you what I'm, I'm doing. He reached right back to me and said, yeah, let's schedule. And I was like, great. That's how it should work. It sh- doesn't have to be any harder than that. <laughs> no, it actually shouldn't be, right? Uh, if two people want to talk. And, and that's what we do on Local Open Mic. We talk a right. lot. Let's discuss what you've been doing in the last year. Absolutely. Well, what I did, you know, this is called sort of making hay while the sun shines or, or making uh, lemonade out of lemons. Right. When I had the downtime and I wasn't uh, touring and I wasn't able to do live shows, I ended up doing a lot of home recording, uh, which included mixing a whole bunch of my back catalog. I had a whole bunch of stuff in the can, which had never been mixed and never seen the light of day. So I kind of trained myself to be a mixing engineer. I started doing file sharing sessions with all my friends who were similarly unemployed. And we started, you know, creating this tremendous new catalog of music, new music, I call it, you know, jokingly, the quarantine sessions. I think I did probably two albums worth of material over over the time period. Uh, And then I had another probably four albums, three or four albums worth of stuff in the can, which, again, I've been able to mix. I've been able to, you know, shoot uh, uh, independent videos for all these things. Um, so, and also I've been practicing too. Like I, I've been working on my upright bass playing, playing with the bow, playing Arco. I've been working on my sight reading, you know, trying to make the best of it and anticipating the day when once again, suddenly we will we'll be working again. And now that, uh, starting in this, I'm in the Northeastern United States. So starting in the beginning of June, suddenly all the private party gigs are back on. Back like on. Went, we love that. Yeah. Like a light switch turned on. So suddenly I'm as busy as I was the day before the light switch turned off in March, you know, uh, of the last year. Uh, and I've been running up and down the Eastern seaboard and I've been playing on uh, Cape Cod and Nantucket and New Jersey and, and uh, flying to Colorado this weekend to do a wedding and I'm flying to Italy next month to do a wedding. And uh, the theater gigs are coming back slower. They're going to be back in the fall, but the, they're all, all the Broadway gigs are coming back. 
Uh, and then the concert business is also coming back a little bit slower. But again, I'm busy. I'm booked through the end Super. of the year. Already. So just send me a ticket for Italy and I'll carry your bags. <laughs> My pleasure. Okay. I'll be happy be... to. I need a roadie, man. I need one. <laughs> I'll be your roadie. I'll be your lackey. Just take me to Italy. <laughs> it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be a, a fun gig and I'm not going to make light of it at all. But the reality of it is we're going to be on our behind on a plane for seven hours we're going to play a gig and we're going to come right back. So it's not going to be, we'll have a couple, we'll have a lovely day in Siena, Italy, which I'm looking forward to. Um, you know, the, the worst day in Siena, Italy is probably, you know, not going to be the worst day of your life. Uh, and I'm happy to be working, trust me, but uh, it looks better on paper than it is, you know, on the frequent flyer miles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, how many instruments do you play? I'm pretty principally just a bassist, electric bass. I double on acoustic bass. Uh, I do play a little guitar. I play a tiny bit of uh, keyboard, a tiny bit of percussion, and I sing a lot of sort of background okay. vocals. But okay. principally, electric bass, Fender bass, that's my thing. That's what I do. Good. I think that's important to establish early on because uh, most of the people that I talk with uh, feel like they have to so over diversify that in a lot of cases they're not even good enough on one instrument to feel comfortable in front of. Well, people. that's what I feel like. Like I can barely play the bass as it is. So now you want me to go play keyboards in front of somebody? <laughs> I don't know. But I have had to play uh, a guitar, electric six-string electric guitar, on national television before because one show we did, the host was the bass player. So I'm like, I guess I'm switching to guitar. You know, if I want the gig. <laughs> So I, I have played guitar on national television, and I also have played keyboards on stage at Carnegie Hall, because wow. I was doing an or congratulations. Thank you. I'm not I'm not qualified, but I did do it. It happened. <laughs> I was playing a rock uh, classical crossover piece called the Rock Concertos. It was a four piece, five piece rock band, and a 66 piece orchestra and a 40 voice choir, and part of you know as one does, you know. Yeah, and I never do a concert without that many people, right? Yeah, you need at least 100 cats on stage to sort of feel like you have your friends behind you. But part of my marching orders where I had to play a couple of passages, like on a synthesizer, a pipe organ sort of patch, this real gothic-sounding thing. So I learned this five-chord sequence as a series of, like, hand moves. You know, like, I understand the harmony, but I'm not uh, facile as a keyboard player at all. But I, yeah, I played piano on stage at Carnegie Hall, uh, regardless of my qualifications. To the contrary, uh, there, there's one wedding band that I work in that kind of works the basically like the Russian American market, and I'd say half to sixty percent of what we do is playback. It's it's an MP3. The singers are live, but the band, our our marching orders are to pantomime along with the tracks for those. You know, it's about half of the evening. We're not playing a note. Yeah, I've never heard it described that way, pantomime. Pantomiming, right. <laughs> but the other half of the evening, we're reading charts. You know, we're like reading big band stuff. It's just like all dots in front of your face. So you have to go from one extreme to the other, like the maximum skill you can have to zero skill, like just holding the instrument all in the course of the same evening. It's, it's interesting, interesting to say the least. Well, that's really good. Now, how many people do you consider in your circle that you – recorded with for this this project you did over the last year the what do you call it the the quarantine sessions right well again because everybody was similarly unemployed i was reaching out to people that uh 
lived in other cities and other countries and putting together, you know, so I really have a lot of musicians uh, who contributed to it over the course of the, of the year. Um, I don't even know a number, uh, gotta be a couple of dozen. You know, I have a core group of people that I work with in and around New York mostly. And also I had a recording trio project uh, with two buddies of mine who used to live in New York, but now they one of them moved back to Buffalo and the other one moved back to Massachusetts. So we've been doing some file sharing, um, you know, long distance, but we have a couple of CDs out with that group as a trio. And then, you know, some of the, the latest thing on, on Color Red Records, the, the Crab Walk song, I think there's seven of us on there, uh, multi-layered saxophones, multi-layered percussion, guitar, bass, drums, keys. Um, so I just kind of did it track by track as I was approaching things, thinking, what would be fun here? Who do I know? You know, and, and, and P.S., who has a, re- a home recording rig? That's the other thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned uh, Crab Walk being uh, one of the things you did. We have that song queued up. Tell us about that song. Okay, so this was a lot of fun to do. Uh, the drummer and I, the drummer is a guy named Kenny Soul. He was in a band on uh, Columbia Records called Dag, a great funk band. And before that, he was in the, the a band called Nantucket, which uh, had a lot of big hits, late 70s. Uh, and I had him uh, with me in the Sam Moore band from Sam and Dave. We were, I dragged him around the planet for the last few years of Sam's uh, career before he semi-retired. He's still around, but he's semi-retired. So anyway, Kenny and I, Kenny lives right over here in Queens, and he's got a recording rig in his basement. So probably right before the pandemic, we went over and we just sort of jammed through some some rhythm atmospheres, if you will, some grooves. We kind of just sort of composed some grooves on the spot. So I had these kind of in the can, bass and drums live in the same room. Uh, and then when everything locked down, I said, okay, if I'm going to have to add some things on, you know, I composed some melodies and wrote out some horn parts and then started, you know, emailing, calling friends. So uh, my friend Crispin Seo, who from the Uptown Horns, plays uh, saxophones, plural, on it. And I've been working with Crispin on and off for the last 25 years. He's the guy who played the alto solo on James Brown's Living in America. So he's a legitimate, you know, rock star guy. He's on oh, yeah. he's on Word Up by Cameo. He's on Love Shack by the B-52s. He's on Rain Dog by Tom Waits. You know, he's he's a well-traveled, well-recorded musician. Um, and then I got uh, my friend Jim Dower. He's a keyboard player in my tr- recording trio project. He uh, sent in the keyboard parts. I got percussion parts from my friend Doug Henricks. Who is he was the percussionist on In the Heights on Broadway, uh, tremendous player, really great. And then sort of the the cherry on top was the guitar player is my friend Moses Moe from the band Mother's Finest. And Mother's Finest was a band that I saw, you know, when I was first starting to play. They've been together 50 years, 5-0. They sort of you know single-handedly invented the genre of funk rock. Like they managed to merge uh, Led Zeppelin with uh, Smokey Robinson in one of their their early hit records, you know. And when was this? What era? What so years? Mother's Finest. They started. I think they first first got together in 1970. But they started to have FM radio hits throughout the mid 70s, 75 through 79. We kind of you know the high point of the years. They were on Epic Records. They had hits like uh, Get a Piece of the Rock, Mickey's Monkey, uh, Magic Carpet Ride, they did a, a funk rock cover of Magic Carpet Ride, things like that. Um, and still around. I'm mean, still touring, still sounding amazing. Um, so uh, Kenny, my drummer, knows Mo from, from way back from touring with Mother's Finest, you know, when he was in Nantucket years ago. 
And I started recording with Mo a couple of years ago and sending him uh, tracks via email for his stuff. And I said, hey, Mo, you want to play on this thing? He's like, absolutely. So I have Moses Moe, one of my childhood heroes, playing guitar on, on Crab Walk. And just couldn't be more thrilled about it. What were you thinking about when you wrote Crab Walk? Well, it's funny because, like I said, the initial process was just me and Kenny jamming some grooves. We were just playing some grooves in his basement, and there wasn't a composition there initially. Um, so when I decided to go ahead and flesh the thing out, what I did was, you know, composed uh, all the horn parts, wrote those out, uh, and then sort of, you know, I, I forget, I don't think there's much of a chord structure. I think it's all basically... Uh, around the same D7 kind of environment, although there's some different sections rhythmically, you know. So then I kind of gave it to the to the players to do with what they will. Uh, and like I said, the horn part was the only thing I had written out, the, 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 the melody, the head, and then let everybody sort of do their improvised solos. Um, so it, it kind of came together organically. I guess I could say that I wrote it, or if not, you know, it's, a, it's a, certainly a group project. I gave everybody writing credit for the whole thing. People are going to love this. It's a good song. I like Crab Walk. Cool. Thanks. So here is Crab Walk.
That was amazing. <laughs> and that sax player, who was he again? Crispin Seo from the Uptown Horns. Again. Oh, man. Amazing. That baritone solo. That was hot stuff. And the bass playing, of course, was absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> nice. The bass gives it its funk more than anything else. And you did a great job on that. Uh, maybe I should tell everybody, uh, Ivan, you go by the handle Funk Boy. I have been called that and much worse. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a name given to me, a nickname given to me when I was a college radio DJ, because I kind of grew up listening to soul and R&B records. So at my college station, I was the guy who kind of knew more about that genre. So they started calling me that. It had nothing to do with the bass playing, honestly. It was more about sort of the records I was spinning. Uh, but it, it merged right into the bass playing career, and I, I, I don't fight it. I like it. It's a good moniker. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, uh, it absolutely works. Certainly does for me. So leading up to this last year and everything else you did, tell us, going back maybe five years, uh, what was life like for you as a musician leading up to everything we all went through in the last year. You know, it's been really good. It's been really busy. Uh, I've been full-time professional freelance bass player. Uh, I have not had a day job since 1995. Wow, God bless you. I know, right? You know, knock on wood. (laughs) I know that I'm lucky. I know that I work hard. Uh, I average, I don't know what it is. I, I keep statistics on these things. It's probably about 250 days a year, kind of average. Um, among a whole disparate set of clients that I work for. So I do a lot of private party work, you know, weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs is the standard joke there. I do a lot of concerts on the classic soul and R&B circuit. I was music director for uh, Sam Moore, for Sam and Dave for 13 years on the road. I did a year on the road as music director with uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, so, so great. So much fun. You know, some of the she's Motown royalty, no question about it. For those listening that don't recognize the name immediately, Martha Reeves, she was the first, I believe, to record uh, Dancing in the Streets. That is correct, 100%. And so it's been covered by a number of people, maybe most famously David Bowie. David Bowie and, and his buddy Mick Jagger, too. you got to remember, it was a duet. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I didn't actually know yeah. that. Uh, so that's, Hey, that's new for me, right? We're all learning. We're all learning something here on local open mic, but for the younger crowd, the, the origin, the genesis of Martha Reeves is with songs like that. Summer of 1964 dancing in the streets. Um, Ah, the British invasion years. Right. That's right. And to have sort of like, you know, a homegrown American, African American act like that, break through the charts was nothing short of amazing what Barry Gordy was accomplishing over there. Um, there are other big hits for love is like a heat wave come and get these memories, Jimmy Mack, uh, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. That was my favorite song to play in the set because the, the baseline was this wonderful composed baseline by the, the great Motown bassist, James Jamerson, but it doubled the baritone sax part. So when I got to play it on stage with her, you know, the first time I did was with my pal Crispin Seal, who you just heard playing baritone sax on Crab Wolf. You know, so we're playing in lockstep together, this classic Motown groove. And it just, it's, there's no feeling quite like it. There's no way to describe how much fun that is to do with the original artist who sang it, you know. So what else happened during this last five years? You, 
You kept very busy, yeah, obviously. Yeah, it was just sort of like seemed more of the same. I was doing, uh, in the winters, I would do uh, about a month of like a Motown Christmas tour. I was doing that sort of once, that was kind of once a year. Um, uh, again, the some of the regular clients that I would see on, on the classic soul R&B circuit, where I would see the Shirelles and the Drifters and the Tokens fairly regularly. I think right before the lockdown, I met Joey D from Joey D and the Starlighters. I played with him. I played with Terry Johnson from the Flamingos. I only have the eyes Flamingos. for you, you know. I got to play that with him. <laughs> wow. He's the guy who wrote it. No, he didn't write it. He arranged it. Like he's the guy who played guitar and did all that that tremendous duop arrangement. Um, concert wise, I was also did a couple of uh, rock tours with a reformed uh, Humble Pie uh, in eighteen oh, and nineteen. Okay. So that was like you know just full volume rock and roll, uh, tremendous group, great fun. Uh, looks like we might have some things on the, hor- on the horizon once things open back up again, too. So I'm very excited about that. Humble Pie. I haven't heard that name in a very long <laughs> right. time. Well, there hasn't been a, a Humble Pie tour in over 20 years. Like the last one was, last record they did was 2001. So they've been dormant for a long time. But Jerry Shirley, the original drummer and trademark holder, is... Uh, reforming the band we're putting us out on the road so so now are you going to be a part of that project uh i i have been for the last three years so i assume it's going to continue unless i get sacked uh <laughs> but they seem to like me and i know i love them so i believe that uh well it's a, keep it's it. a good match and again i'm always available to carry your bags uh, if, uh... <laughs> i appreciate <laughs> that and the, the other thing that I've been doing, which is kind of notable sort of around home, and this has been not even the last five years, it's been more like the last 10, 12 years, is that I've been subbing on Broadway shows. Um, and that's been really interesting work because, you know, they once the Broadway show is open, they're doing eight shows a week. And, you know, the musician who holds the chair due to the 802, local musicians 802 contract, only has to be there 50% of the shows to maintain the chair. So they can sub out to go do other things, to maintain their other contacts and, you know, do concerts, whatever they need to do, take family time. So each one of the, the shareholders in a Broadway orchestra usually has four or five substitute musicians that they can call any time to do, uh, to come in and, and, you know, pinch hit for them. Uh, it's a lot of pressure as a sub. It's really interesting. But this, the, the last show I did, in fact, I did the last regular performance of Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the Temptations musical on Broadway, the day before the world shut down. That was the last thing I did on Broadway. I don't even have words <laughs> for that. <That's... laughs> it's hard to describe what it is, you know, but it's a two and a half hour long concert, you know, with music and there's action and there's actors and there's lines. So I did that. I did a Hedwig, Hedwig and the Angry Inch on Broadway. I did Spider-Man on Broadway, uh, Rock of Ages. I subbed on Rock of Ages for, Almost its entire six-year run, probably. Now, is that in the last five years, uh, or are we going way back? Rock of Ages has been well. The broad, uh, yes, yes, and no, because the Broadway run closed, I think, maybe five, six years ago. But then it, it shifted, transferred back to Off Broadway. So the the there's a Off Broadway house called New World Stages. So Rock of Ages was still running as of the end of the pandemic. So yeah, I think the last week before the pandemic, I subbed on Rock of Ages. I subbed on Ain't Too Proud. I played two weddings and then like three nightclub jobs. And, uh, oh, and then a multi-act oldies bill before the shutdown. That was the one I told you about with Joey D from the Starlighters, uh, Charlie Thomas from the original Drifters, uh, 
the tokens, uh, I can't even remember. Oh, and, and the flamingos. It was all like that was two two nights, one in New York and one in New Jersey, and that was, like I said, just the week, the last week in March before we could, uh, before everything shut down. So. So I guess I don't have to ask you, uh, what were you doing when the world shut down? I was down? on stage. You've answered that. <laughs> I was on stage. I was literally on stage. And I th- one of the last things I did was I played a super spreader event at a, at a bar in, in Greenwich Village. where every <laughs> I've never heard anybody admit they played oh, a super spreader well, event. The reason I know it is because I got COVID. I had COVID the very first week. Oh, I'm sorry Not to hear that. It was fine. For us, you know, me and my partner, it was a very, uh, very mild flu. Uh, and we know it hits everybody differently. And some people it, it affected. We have, we have, I think I have six different friends who are deceased, you know, but we, we got through it just fine. And I know that's where I got it because it was like, you know, it was, as we say, asses to elbows in that club. It was really like tight, sweaty, people dancing right on top of you. You know, it was like one to four in the morning. I was playing this thing crowded, packed to the rafters. So I'm like, yep, that was, that had to be the one. And not a mask in sight. I'll well, bet. We didn't know that yet. You know, we didn't have that yet. So it wasn't, uh, it was before the, before the quarantine, before the lockdown, before the mass mandates and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we had some, we had kind of sparse information that was sort of changing day to day. And they, I don't think they were telling us how bad it was. They didn't know how bad it was yet. I don't think, you know, so we were continuing to work life as usual until suddenly the next day it was not, you know, Broadway closed, all the bars closed. I was like, okay, I guess, that was it. So in New York, was that in March? That was March. Yes. Last yes, year? it was March. I can't remember the exact date, okay. 14th, maybe. But I, yeah, I was working right up until that day. And I think I'm probably even worked that weekend afterwards as well. Well, I, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the first national news hotspots was in uh, Westchester County, New York, for some reason. Like we were one of the very, very early uh, um, hotspots. And one of the last shows I did that that multi-act oldies bill I told you was in Tarrytown, New York, which is right in Westchester County. You know, so like we were right in the thick of it as as it was still in the news, and we we heard about it. We know we knew it was around, but again, we didn't know how bad it was. We didn't know what it was going to do. We didn't know so many things at the time because we might or might not have taken the job. But uh, we played in a theater full of people. You know. But it was on a stage, you know, a, a sort of away from the crowd, unlike the bar gig I was telling you about, where everybody's like breathing on your, in your face kind of thing. Well, that's something. Let's talk about Busting Hump. Tell us about that song. <laughs> another, <laughs> it's a great name, yeah, by the way. it's a good title, right? Uh, this is another one. Believe it or not, this started out as just the hand claps. Uh, my drummer, Kenny, sent me uh, a sample of just the claps. Like, I was thinking about writing a piece that was sort of like inspired by these great 70s funk records that all, every funk record on the radio in the 70s seemed to have a chorus of people clapping hands on on two and four in the background. Oh, it was required. It was required, right. It's, it's the same thing. Like, you know, you wouldn't have a, a, a Beatles record without two guitars. Like, you didn't have a 70s funk record without hand claps. So he had a hand clap. I think it was maybe from a, a sample from a, uh, oh, you know what it was? It was um, the Zap Band, More Bounce to the Ounce. It was like, <laughs> More yeah, it was like a, a, a hand clap sample from that track, you know, which I knew was a favorite one in 1980 on, uh, I 
forget which label it was on, but the Zap Band, I, and Roger Troutman and the Zap Band. So that was just like, you know, the way these things work is like you just need some initial spark to sort of set up a jam session kind of thing. And this thing, you know, having a hand clap being the initial spark is such an out of left field uh, way to try to compose a song. So then Kenny came up with a drum groove. I came up with a bass groove and the bass groove kind of almost became the melody of the thing really. Um, and then I did, as I was talking before, you know, sort of uh, looped in our other friends and wrote out things for them to play. Um, uh, the keyboard parts, I, I wrote out uh, Jim, Jim Dower's melody for that. And, um, and there it is, like it, now it exists. Well, that's something that you got inspiration from hand claps. That's <laughs> first and only time, by the way. I've never that's it. Never happened before. It may never happen again. But that's that's what started that track with the hand claps. This is Boston Hump by Funk Boy and his friends.
Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. I haven't heard it since we mixed it. It's so interesting to hear it back. And, uh, man, really pleased with the way it came out. I also realized how much inspiration we really drew from uh, uh, Parliament Funkadelic and, and, and uh, Bootsy Collins as well. I think we owe them a debt, a definite debt. Of gratitude. Yes. Yeah, so who is playing the synth again? Oh, uh, that's my buddy, Jim Dower. Uh, that, actually, that whole band, Jim Dower on keys, Mark Newman on guitar, and Kenny Soul on drums. The, the, the four of us were the, the core of the last version of the Sam Moore band. So I dragged those guys around the planet with me, you know, <laughs> telling them where to go and when to play and when to stop playing. I've been doing that for a lot of years with those guys. Uh, I haven't heard a synth like that that really goes back to like 80s synth playing. Yeah, even before, you know? even before I told him, I said, I want 70s analog sounds. I don't like, I think Bernie Worrell, think Parliament Funkadelic, you know, and, and okay. he really rose to the challenge. I was just listening to it now. And I'm like, yeah, he did his homework really good on that one. He sounded great. Yeah, he did. Now, did, were you using effects on your bass? Yes, there is an effect on there. It's uh. That particular one is a plugin that I found in my in my DAW. My reason it's kind of a it's kind of a combination distortion with a, an octave divider kind of thing on it. Um, but for live, I use a, a, a four unit by a company called Tech Twenty One. Those are the guys that invented the Sans amp. So they have a, a thing called the Bass Fly Rig, which is only about you know three inches wide and twelve inches long. And it's got, you know, all the amp simulation, all the, um, all those effects you just heard, octave dividers, envelope filters, all that kind of stuff. I have like Bootsy Collins in a box and I put it on the floor and I send an XLR out to the, to the front of the house. And it just, it's amazing. It sounds like I'm playing through, uh, you know, a giant Ampeg stack. It's beautiful. The sound of it. Well, it was very impressive. I'm listening to that going, man, that's a, that is a funky, dirty sound going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, it really is. There's a lot of grit on that tone, for sure. So do you find that a lot of the uh, bass playing you do is uh, pretty straightforward stuff? Um, and I do, and by that, I mean not a lot of slap bass and things going on? Or Well, you, you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, studying that technique and developing it, and I certainly do have it. Uh, and you know, I, I do a, there's a funk band that I used to do every Thursday night, one to four in the morning on Bleecker Street over here. And they were kind of all, uh, Prince and Sly and the Family Stone kind of covers that was sort of, so, you know, when you do thank you for letting me be myself again, you know, you really have to get the, that the original pop radio slap bass part together. But I also find that sort of so much of my bread and butter has been in the pre slap bass era sort of the Motown and the Stax era. So that's like if you think of Fender P-Bass with some foam under the strings by the bridge to give you that real dead sort of thuddy soul music sound. Um, that I, I spent much more time paying my rent doing that than playing slap style. Though I do have it and I can do it. You know, it's just like I get hired to do the other thing more often. Well... Yeah, it was good. See, I'm a bass player. I started out as a bass player in my first band in se when I was 17 years old, and nobody else would play bass back then. It wasn't the sexy thing to play. He drew the short straw. <laughs> Paul McCartney also was the one who drew the short straw on the Beatles. Like he, The reason he's the bass player is they said, well, somebody's got to do it. He's like, all right. I'll go. <laughs> but it, 
I never knew yeah. that. Is that a Absolutely, true story? Absolutely, 100% true. But it worked out. <laughs> I literally have never heard him tell it that story. It worked out so. for him just fine. Yeah. So have you ever done anything with any of the former Beatles? Never. No, I wish. You know, that would have been just a, a dream come true. I have played with, uh, and I'm sure you saw it in the bio there, I have played with 50 uh, inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, in yep. my travels. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, no Beatles no, or I should say no Beatles yet, because, you know, I have friends who yeah. have definitely played with, with Ringo on some of his all-star tours. So we'll see. I'm available if they need me. Well, maybe they'll hear this and we'll uh, be able to do a tie-in. <laughs> yeah. So That's kind of the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, like everything we do is sort of networking word of mouth. You know, I have a degree in music, right? And nobody has ever once asked to see it to qualify me for a job. It has no bearing on the whether that I can do a gig or not. The only thing you do is sort of like it's word of mouth. It's it's people that you meet, and this person knows that person, and that person knows the other person, and they recommend you for a job. And you know the uh, a lot of the stuff that I got, you know, all these rock and roll hall of famers I got, I met from um, again my friend Chris Pensio, the sax player you just heard on Crab Walk. I met him on a fifty dollar blues gig, you know, in Manhattan. That, that is how we met. So you, you just never know what leads to what and who knows whom. And, you know, he had a situation shortly after that where he was in dire need of a bass player kind of last minute. And he's like, I remember that guy. I saw him recently. He played good and he seemed to do his homework. So, you know, suddenly I was in. The first time I played with the Uptown Horns with that band, uh, it was uh, at the bottom line in New York City. They had just done an album. There was like a, a the Uptown Horns Review was the name of the concept. So they had a bunch of guest singers, including Susie Tyrell, who went on to play with uh, Bruce Springsteen. She's kind of in the Springsteen camp now. Um, Vernon Reed from Living Color was a guest guitar player. Uh, Bernard Fowler, who's one of the singers with the Rolling Stones organization, was on that gig. And Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band. Right? And this was, you know, I got a week's notice to do this gig they gave me a normal bias cassette tape that you buy at the 99 cent store and no sheet music said here learn this there's one rehearsal and you're going to play with all these guest stars you know and this was again coming from a 50 dollar blues gig that i did at a, at a random nightclub in manhattan led to that you know suddenly being on stage and going like okay i guess it's time to really you know show what i learned in music school which again nobody's asked to see the degree but you know apparently I learned to do the homework. That's what helped me, helped me get that gig. Well, here, here's my rap about music education. I do believe it's important and I think it'll help you sort of function in the world, but I don't believe that you have to go to music school to get that. I think you can, you can absolutely study in the school of hard knocks. You can be an autodidact and teach yourself. You can study privately. There's so many different paths to the same star. I went to music school kind of late in life. I'd already gone to college and I had a psychology degree where I was working in college radio. And then I went to the work in the music business. I worked for Epic Records as a publicist for, for three years. And then I just said, you know, what I really want to do is play. So in my mid getting towards late twenties, I went back to music school and got myself a degree uh, afterwards. And, and that happened to work for me, you know, but it wasn't my initial plan. It wasn't my initial undergraduate degree. Um, and again, it didn't have to come from Berklee College of Music. It just happened to. But, you know, for instance, I was studying with a guy. I lived in London for a short time, for about a year and a half. Um, and I was studying with a guy who was a Berklee graduate. He was a, a tremendous, great bass teacher in London, a guy named Joe Hubbard. 
and you know, you pay him 50 pounds a week and you had uh, this, uh, he had this curriculum that you had to go through sequentially. You had to do lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. Right. And what I realized in, in six months, when I got to Berkeley, they give you a, an, a placement exam when you come in because everybody's kind of got different levels of stuff that they've studied in their lives. So when I got to Berkeley, I took the placement exam and I placed out of two years of harmony classes because this guy, this one guy that I studied with privately had taught me their entire harmony system. And I didn't know it at the time. I was just sort of doing the lessons. And, and when I got to, uh, to Berkeley and ready to pay all that college tuition, he just saved me two years worth, <laughs> worth of classes, you know, that he'd taught me at 50 pounds a week uh, privately. So there's, well, God bless them. That's great. Yeah. There's all kind of different ways to study is my point, you know, so like, and, and, yeah. and also it's never too late. So if you think like you're missing out on certain pieces in your, in your life and we all have things we can work on, you know, I'm this last couple of years, I've just started to play the upright bass with the bow. I'd never done that before. I wasn't raised in classical music. I wasn't raised playing upright. But, you know, when you sub on Broadway shows, occasionally there's a song that has this arco part that you have to be able to play with a bow. So I've had to sit down as a much older human being and try to figure out, you know, it's like learning how to play guitar with a fly swatter. You know, it makes no sense to, to the way we've been trained. But, uh, you know, you just dedicate some time to it and baby steps after baby steps. And suddenly I, I can I can make a little noise without squeaking too much now, you know. So did you have to go out and buy a bass to learn it all or I have, did you have friends that have? Yeah, no, I have, uh, I have an acoustic bass. I've, I've had one for a long time because uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double that you run into to need for certain things. If you're doing a jazz gig or sometimes even songwriter gigs, like they'll, they'll have a couple of songs that they want on upright for the record or something like that. So I've been playing pizzicato plucked upright for a long time. Um, but that was not what my, you know, my principal instrument at Berkeley was electric bass guitar, you know, the Fender bass. So, so the, the bow was the new piece that I had to go out and buy myself one. And I found a, a graphite carbon fiber bow for, um, uh, came highly recommended to me from people that, that know what they're doing. And this thing, I think it cost me $120. It was just this beautiful piece of gear. And it's taken me a long time to try to get any noise out of it. But, uh, I'm making some strides slowly, you know, it's never too late. That's my point. Never too late. Never too late. So what were you doing? Uh, what caused you to go into music full time back in the nineties? Oh, it was, you just, it was uh, just a change of thinking. I can do this now. It, or? It, it was worse than that. I hit the wall. I, I decided because I was in the corporate world. I, I was a publicist for Epic records. I had a corporate Amex card. I was working with all these platinum level artists as a, you know, as a desk jockey, trying to get them in the newspapers and on television. And it was what I came to realize was the music business is not very much about music. It's about marketing. You know, they, and I even had one of the senior VPs at the company tell me one time, he said, I don't know anything about music. You know, I could be selling soap, but marketing is what I do. And this guy created some really big pop stars, you know, so I kind of decided, all right, this, this doesn't feel creative to me in the way that I hoped it would want to be. And I was realizing that there was nothing else that I wanted to do but play music. And that was kind of a, in a way, that was a drag to realize that because suddenly like your career choices get 
your employment opportunities get really limited, you know, like suddenly there's only one thing you want to do and you hope to play, pay your rent doing it. So once I came to that realization, which again, felt like an awful realization, I said, all right, now if I'm going to do this, I know I need to fill in the gaps in my music education because it was so spotty coming up. And that's when I decided to go to Berkeley and I, I really powered through Berkeley. You know, I, I graduated in 18 months. I wanted to get in and out as quick, quickly as I could to sort of see if I could then make a go at it as a professional musician. Um, and then started when I moved to New York City, and this is 92, and I temped for like three years. I was, uh, uh, I was typing resumes for the people that the phone company was laying off. It was a, <laughs> it was a bad karma job, but it kept me employed at $15 an hour. And then at night I was building my freelance career, building my contacts, building the number of bands that I would play with. And then sort of, it kind of reached a tipping point where I could afford to do it full time in, in uh, 95. And I haven't had a day job since. In the early going, did you find you had lots of work or did you have to kind of work at networking? Uh, I realize now it sounds like you don't have to go very far and you're either getting phone calls or can call somebody up to keep busy. Uh, but back then, what was it like? Yeah, well, back then, you're new in town. You don't know anybody, you know, or the, or the people that I did know were the platinum level rock stars that I work with at the label, and they're not going to hire a new kid in town, you know, to do what they need to do. They've got their own thing. So you start going to jam sessions. You start going to other people's gigs. You start meeting this person, meeting that person. Um, I think the, the $50 blues gig I told you about where I met Chris Pencio, you know, that was from a, a, a friend of mine that I knew from New Orleans way back you know, just called me, knew I was in town. Uh, the Shirelles I got recommended to by a friend of a friend of a friend who knew that I just graduated from music school. And basically the criterion for that gig at the time was like, you know, can you play at all? Can you read charts at all? And if so, you, you got the gig. You, you know, you might not get a repeat booking, but, you know, they needed people to, to fill in on a job that was out of town. Well, in the 90s, they could have called me to do the bass Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't get those calls. You got well, them. I, yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, part of it was sort of being, I knew that I needed to be in a, in a major hub too. So like uh, the music business is kind of centered in sort of like New York, Los Angeles, and maybe Nashville. Now it's probably branching out. probably you want to include maybe Austin, Texas and that. So, you know, to sort of improve your odds, you kind of need to be around the people that are doing those kinds of gigs so to, to get that phone call from, you know, Tacoma, for instance, would be a bit of a stretch because now they got to fly you in to New York to, to go play the gig. Uh, and again, if it pays 50 bucks, you know, they can't really afford the plane ticket on top of that. Um, the, the shape of the business is changing a lot. But, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I threw myself sort of into it, into the uh, off the deep end, if, if you will, to try to see if I could make it work. Uh, and fortunately, it worked out. There were no guarantees that it was going to work out at all, you know. But I, again, I kept getting repeat business. I kept getting, you know, networking. I'm, and I'm not a big social climber type of person. That's not really my personality type. Um, you know, I try to be friendly and nice to people, but I don't, you know, I'm not constantly going up to people like, hey, man, what gigs you got? What are you doing? What, you know, get me on that gig. I'm, I'm, that's not my personality. I don't really do that. So I try to let the work speak speak for itself and try to let people see me and, you know, and make sure that my, my phone number is available and my website's available on Google. I can be found, you know, like people can really find me if they need, you know, a bass player last minute. And then who knows what leads to what. And suddenly 30 years later, you realize, oh yeah, I guess I had a career. 
Before we get into some of the other stuff about you, let's talk about Look at That Cookie. Tell us about that song. <laughs> so that was part of the uh, the recording trio that I had with my friend Jim Dower and Joe Garetti. Uh, Joe Garetti, I guess most famously, was on tour with Moby for his one of his last big stadium tours. Uh, and Jim, I said I had it with me in the, in the uh, Sam Moore band and played with him quite a bit. Uh, and we had a recording trio recording project we're all all we were all berkeley kids we had a very similar sort of background and we were kind of getting interested in uh, writing at the same time that joe our drummer was getting interested in recording so we said all right well let's meet you know in joe's basement and you know i would bring in a song and jim would bring in a song we would pass out the, the charts we would do one rehearsal take we would do one or maybe two takes and then we'd go get a sandwich then we come back and do the same thing for the other person's song. We did this for four, four or five years. I, I think I have 75 tracks that are in the can from that recording project. And look at that cookie was one of them. You know, uh, you'll hear it's got a vocal chant in it that was uh, kind of inspired by uh, like a Roy Ayers type of uh, jazz fusion sort of thing with this kind of this chorus in the background singing something repetitive that everybody can sort of latch onto and enjoy. Oh, it's it's a very cool song. Yeah, thanks. I've also found too that my friends that have uh, small children, the children adore this song because they latch onto this hook and they sing it over and over and over again. So I've I've annoyed several of my friends who have who are parents <laughs> inadvertently. Well, that, that's part of a kid's vocabulary. Look at that exactly. cookie. Exactly. Who doesn't love cookies? Myself. Of course, they're going to grab onto right. that. So I tell you what, let's get right to look at that cookie. Sookie, 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 take a look at that cookie now. Ah, oh, sookie, 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 take a look at that cookie now. Ah, oh, sookie, 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 take a look at that cookie now. Ah, oh,
a great song i can see why kids like that like i'm listening to that tambourine part too that was inspired by the great jack ashford who was the tambourine player on all the motown hits like that was a sort of pattern i remember setting up for that that song to sort of give it that kind of bouncy motown sort of feel that was kind of the inspiration for that one well yeah it's a fun song and it it just cooks the whole way (laughs) so uh people are gonna like that yeah thanks that was fun so now, do you consider yourself primarily a live performance guy or studio guy? Uh, I think I, I uh, make more of my rent money playing live, but I've done tons of both. And especially, like I said, during the last year and a half, it's been mostly recording stuff because we've been doing a lot of file sharing back and forth. Uh, and I'm playing on my own stuff and playing on other people's stuff and, you know, I played with a buddy of mine in France. I played with some friends of mine in India. You know, it's just like you can kind of go anywhere and do anywhere. It's sort of a a blessing and a curse and that, you know, you can have all these people to to record with, but, you know, not be able to actually go out and and earn a living playing live, which I still think is my primary income source. Right. Well, and a lot of people just really like, you know, playing live. I do. I just love it. It's there's nothing more exhilarating than being in front of a crowd. Oh, it's tremendous, and uh, the crowd, and even more than that, for me, is this sort of interaction with the other musicians. You know, the ensemble playing is the stuff that I value the most. I think um, if the crowd is five people or five thousand, I'm I'm could be equally as happy with the evening. You know. Yeah. Well, I found when I play uh, live, I'm always better the larger the crowd. <laughs> yeah. So for me, a smaller crowd, you know, I do okay, but 
you give me a 5,000 people and I'm, I'm you're, you're ready. You're ready to go. I got it. Size does <laughs> matter in certain instances for sure. Let me ask you any gold records on the wall from your studio work and stuff. Not from the studio work. I have uh, about seven or eight platinum and gold records from my time as a, as a business guy, you know, when I was a publicist. Uh, oh, okay. That's yeah, good. I got a bunch of them. I got Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I've got Living Color. I've got Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross, on, on and on. Weird Al, I think I got one of those. Um, from my playing work, I have two Grammy nomination certificates. One was on a right, thank you. One was on a Pete Seeger record that I, I played on, and one was on a Latin jazz thing. A, a guy named Rafael Cruz is a tremendous percussionist. They both got nominated for Grammys, and part of the uh, the accolade is, you know, I can go to, to NARIS, the National Recording As, uh, Association Academy, and, and I can pay them $50 for a, a commemorative certificate, <laughs> which I did because it's a beautiful bowling trophy. I have it up on the wall. You know, yeah. my Living Color Platinum record is framed by my two Grammy uh, nomination certificates, and it makes me feel like I've, I've got some legitimacy on both sides of the business. So now, um, in the background with, uh, let's take the Michael Jackson project you were on, which one was that on where you got a gold uh, record? To your... That was a platinum award for, that was for the Bad album. That was, he, that came out when I worked at, at Epic, you know. Uh, and subsequently also the, the Weird Al Yankovic album was the bad parody called Fat. So the, <laughs> yeah. I have that one as well. I think that was a gold award in, uh, you know, Al's amazing. He, every record he's done has gone platinum. He's been yeah. such a long-standing, you know, cultural icon. Well, you know, uh, the parodies, he he can get away with parodies where other people couldn't in some cases because it's like the whole Don Rickles effect. You know, people just want to be on stage or around Rickles to get insulted by Absolutely. him. And it's something of a an honor if you've been insulted by Rickles, why you must be somebody other than average uh, because he doesn't pick on average people. He's pretty regular that way. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. Al, not, right? Weird Al was a rite of passage as a pop star. You know, you've really made it in the business if you've made such a cultural impact that there's now also a parody of your song that's also on the radio. You know, that was kind of a rite of passage for a, a lot of people, I think. The EMI years when you were uh, with the Michael Jackson stuff and some of the others, what was your actual position where you had an impact on? So that was uh, that was those Epic projects? Records, not EMI. So Epic, was, I'm sorry. When I, that's okay, all good. Uh, it started out when I started at Epic, it was part of the CBS family of labels. And then, uh, well, the, during the time I was there, it was bought by Sony Music. So uh, my official business card said, Manager, West Coast Publicity, Epic Portrait and CBS Associated Labels. That's kind of that's a long it title. It was a long title, but you know, I just said, yeah, I work for Epic. I'm a publicist, and that seemed to. Is there an acronym for that? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, they did call it EPA. I think was the Epic Portrait Associated Label. Yeah, it was like EPA, but but basically, it was sort of the Epic uh, Records label, and then right downstairs from us was the Columbia Records label, sort of their family of things. So it was kind of all in the same okay. place. Yeah. So when we talk about uh, marketing and things that we've accomplished in life, you wrote a book that's available on Amazon. I did that. Tell us about your book. I certainly did that. It's, it's called uh, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. 
And it's a great title, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. It sort of it addresses exactly what the book is about. You know, I consider myself a working class rock star. I work for a living. I do occasional famousy things. You know, I play with some really famous people, and you're you feel like a rock star for a night. Or uh, one of the funny things I cite in the book too, like when you play at Rock of Ages on Broadway, you're a rock star when you come out of the stage door. People want to take pictures. They want you to sign their playbills. And you're a rock star until you get to the corner of Seventh Avenue, and then you fade back into obscurity again. So. I, I discuss sort of what fame is, how it manifests, whether it's worth chasing, to what degree, and how much that's really important in uh, in your life in terms of feeling successful as a musician. And then most of the book is just like crazy road stories, like you're not going to believe what happened here, and this thing happened in Acapulco, and that thing happened at uh, you know at Carnegie Hall or whatever. And it's a lot of just sort of a lot of funny anecdotes from that. Well, uh, we're going to be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. They can go check it out. That's, uh, I think that'll be a great read. So I haven't had a chance to read it myself at this point, but I knew you, you did it and wanted to bring that up. Yeah, no, I thank you for saying so. It's, I hope you enjoy it. It's, it's a very digestible sort of book. I did the, all the chapters very uh, deliberately in kind of small chunks, so it's not like a, a giant, heavy read. Uh, you can sort of read it. And also I did it in a very sort of non-linear fashion. So you don't have to look at the first hundred pages listening to me talk about my elementary school years. Some of that information is in there, but it's sort of sprinkled in in different parts of the book. So, you know, we get to the good stuff immediately and then we sort of backtrack and sort of let you know how these things happen. And, you know, what happened at my very first high school talent show and things like that as they have bearing on things that happened to me later on in my career. What? got your earliest what happened in, in my music. high school talent show right <laughs> how did you get screwed up in elementary school to be a funk yeah, bass player? well that's interesting because i we didn't have a music program at my high school and it was a very prestigious all boys preparatory school that had no music program so i'm not sure wow, how they, that's it's a big blind spot i thought you know so I didn't play bass until I dabbled with a couple of instruments when I was younger, like guitar for about three minutes and viola for about a minute and uh, keyboards for maybe six months or something, but nothing really stuck. Uh, and then as a senior in high school, I didn't start playing bass until I was 17 years old. Uh, I'd seen some things that sort of made me, you know, I was definitely feeling what bass lines were. And I saw some things sort of made me think like, maybe I could do that. You know, that seems like it's like, could possibly get functional on that because I knew I was late to the party. By the time you're 17, if you haven't picked up an instrument, you know, from what everybody's telling you, you're late, you know, you've already missed the boat on your early education. Uh, yeah. Those years have changed, but yeah. yeah right. right. So I, I already felt, I felt like I needed something that was quote unquote easy to get into. And I felt like, well, bass is only four strings is one note at a time. How hard could it be? And I'm here 40 years later to tell you it's as hard as you want to make it. You know, you can play a wild thing pretty quick on the bass. You know, you can pick that up pretty fast. But then to sort of get to a level where you're doing jazz gigs and Broadway gigs and classical gigs and classic soul gigs, you know, it takes a lifetime of study that I'm still pursuing to this day. Yeah, I traveled around a bit with a country artist playing bass. And uh, again, mostly in the gospel uh, world, which is, of course, really big in the Midwest and South, uh, in the Bible Belt uh, areas. But 
I never could could pick up playing, um, you know, the slap bass and all that stuff. Right. And why why uh, would for you me, do on a country gig anyway, though? Right? You know what I mean? Well, no, exactly. But you see, I had dreams of being a rock star, sure, not we a all do. country bass player. <laughs> right. So, uh, and, you know, here's an irony. I was listening to you play on this uh, last song, and I find that, you know, I'm a terrible lead guitar player. Like, a lot of people sort of get good at rhythm guitar and all, but they never really pick up lead, per se. They never right. get the speed. On bass guitar, I'm actually... a pretty good lead player <laughs> right yeah, right yeah. and i don't know if it's the larger strings the longer space between the uh frets uh the thicker strings maybe that or what the instrument just maybe it's you, the you know? yeah maybe it's the sonic mm -hmm. range i mean sure. i just hear those things sure. better so uh that's an interesting thing and i kept thinking to myself Maybe I should have put all my energy in a bass guitar like Ivan. It's never too late, my friend. Never too late. Never too late. I need it. We need to make a T-shirt, Ivan. I want to be like Ivan. <laughs> or be like well, Funk Boy. I'll, I'll just say this. Be careful what you wish for. And you might want to read the book <laughs> before you decide this is what you want to pursue. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so you got into it late in high school. So where do you originally grow up in? Uh, what town? I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga. I did. And uh, I left there when I was 17, you know, got out of town as soon as I could because I knew I needed for myself, my own personality, I needed a bigger town. I needed to be in a, a more cosmopolitan environment. Not that. It, and what was the town you went New, to? Boston? New Orleans, Louisiana. That's where I went. I went to school because I didn't go to music school because I'd only been playing bass for a year. So I was in no way prepared to like embark on a music degree program. I was, you know, I, I started a biomedical engineering school at Tulane University and got, you know, to the biggest town. I, I think it was the reason I chose Tulane because it was in the biggest metropolitan area city of any of the schools that I got accepted to. So I said, all right, biggest town, Tulane. I went there sight unseen uh, and it worked out great. It was really cool. And what was that initial degree in? Uh, it, well, I started as a biomedical engineering student. I did that for two years and decided that uh, that probably wasn't going to be for me. You know, I was, as much as I enjoyed the, the idea of designing artificial hips and knees. Um, uh, so I ended up with a psychology degree uh, from Tulane. But what I really majored in at Tulane the whole time I was there was I majored in college radio. I was the music director of my college station. So I was the liaison between all the national record labels and the station and helping to, uh, you know, make sure we had all the product in, all the latest records. I was the one recording our playlist to the trade sheets. I was the liaison anytime an artist came through town, like when the Ramones would come to New Orleans to play, I would have them down to the station. I would interview them live on the air to promote the show. So, you know, I have a whole stack of autographed vinyl from the Ramones and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Big Country and Stanley Clark and Jaco Pastorius and all these people that I got just from being in college radio. And I realized that's what I really sort of enjoyed. And that's what sort of catapulted me into the music business. Uh, I was playing bass the whole time. You know, I was playing in local bands I, in, in New Orleans. The first sort of pro gigs I got was backing up Bo Diddley in a pickup band situation when he came through town. And that was the first thing I did that sort of felt like legitimate. But still, I was in no position to sort of embark upon that as a full-time career at that time. You know, that took a, a few years. 
Well, you do have a radio voice. I'll give you that. That's uh, in, in addition to your chops as a musician, you could you could earn a living on radio again if you wanted to. I'm not scared of a microphone. I'm not scared of a camera. I've been standing <laughs> in front of mics and cameras my whole life. So I'm like, you know, hey, I'm here. Let's talk. It's all good, you know. Well, I have too, but uh, more from a like I said, a a gospel background, being on stage, whether it was uh, small churches, large churches, or you know larger events festivals and stuff did, did you so, ever get uh, to play the yeah. i'm an auditorium in nashville nope never so that's, that's nope. no i've never actually been to nashville oh, really? my wow. my country efforts never took me to nashville that's amazing because so, the ryman you know which was the, the traditional home of the grand old opry for many many years yep. was an old converted sure church that's why i was asking about it. it's this beautiful all wooden structure with these you know the rows and rows of seats, they did look like, look like pews, basically, you know, so it kind of had this, this aura about it. The building was such a, such a, a wonderful place to be. You could tell all the great things that had happened in there. Well, that's amazing. So I'll tell you what, uh, without, uh, let's talk about pig's mm. feet. And tell us about Pig's that's Feet. Cute. That's kind of an interesting name for a song. I suppose everyone out there in Radio Land wants to know why Tim is asking me to speak about uh, pork products. There's a reason for it. <laughs> uh, again, this goes back to my recording project trio with my friends Jim Dower and Joe Garetti. And we were concentrating on music that was sort of funk-based music. And what I was noticing that anytime anybody put a lyric into their song that said, oh, this is funky, I said, you know what? Saying that something is funky negates the funk. You can't say it out loud. You just have to sort of, you know, imply it in other ways. But then you start to think sort of what is funk? And the origin of the word also has a connotation as something that has a really strong odor, some a strong smell to it. So Okay, I never put it that right? way, but that's, well that's that's the funk, you know. What's the you know, smells funky in here? That's kind of the origin of that word. Um, and then so you're thinking like what's what kind of has a funky smell to it? Well, pig's feet, I mean, that's a really strong thing. So we came up with this sort of chant is, that's about, it's called pig's feet and potted meat. And the idea being like, what could possibly be funkier than a pig's foot in a, in a can of, of deviled ham or whatever, you know? Uh, it was just sort of a, 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 again, a cavalier sort of idea that, that became an entire composition, which I think you're about to play. So you'll hear what's going to happen. Okay, well, let's get right to it. This is Pig's Feet. Pig's Feet and Potted Meat. Pig's Feet and Potted Meat. Pig's Feet and Potted Meat.
You know, you described that great. I mean, if you've got to tell people it's funk, uh, maybe you've lost the uh, audience yeah, already. No, and describing it as pig's feet and potted meat, that's brilliant. That's <laughs> <You laughs> very you good. You can't come right yeah. out and say it. That takes all the nuance no. out of it, man. No, put some stank on that song. That one, too. And you had that, too. You had, what, a wah going on that bass? Yeah, that's, and... that's a combination envelope filter, octave divider thing. Uh, I think that one was probably a, a bass synthesizer pedal thing done by MXR. But again, uh, the, 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 use, the thing I use now is the Tech 21 bass fly rig, which makes that sound and just brilliantly. Uh, and also, as I was listening to that track, I'm reminded too, that one was really inspired by the meters from New Orleans, you know, the guys who were the backing band for Dr. John's Right Place, Wrong Time, and uh, yep. Robert Palmer sneaking Sally through the alley, and um, what else did they do? Oh, uh, Lady Marmalade by uh, uh, La Belle. The meters. La Belle. Yeah, the meters were the band on that. It's a New Orleans funk band. I used to see, I really, I grew up at their feet. I used to watch them all the time in the Neville Brothers band. You know, I would stand looking up at, you know, at George Porter Jr. from the meters and stole all of his licks and just stand yep. up and you know, looking at Aaron Neville. Yeah. yeah, I've seen the Neville Brothers play. Fantastic. Uh, he was on stage at the same time as uh, Cheryl Crow right. at a uh, at a concert. You know, you wouldn't think they'd be on the stage at the same time, right? But Aaron Neville, Sharon Crow, Jeff Beck. Yeah. Uh, was it a, a Seattle Seafair back in the 90s? Right. Well, that, one of the so main things that I love so much about the Nevilles, they were managed by Bill Graham, Bill Graham Presents. And one of the things, you know, the programming that Bill always did at the Fillmore Auditorium was he would have, you know, Sun Ra on the same bill as Sly and the Family Stone. Like he would put together these seemingly disparate sort of genres. But to him, it was all good music. And the Neville Brothers, too, you know, like, they were like, I, what you just said, Neville Brothers with Sheryl Crow, I've seen them with Joan Baez, you know, and the Neville's, like, it makes perfect sense to them. And to me, too, when you see them, it's, it's just music. They're communicating yeah. musically with people, and it doesn't matter, you know, Neville's, they toured with the Grateful Dead quite a bit, you know. Yeah. I think they got their start in gospel, too. So, you know, it, so many people seem to have a gospel background that then spread out and... uh it almost seems sometimes that's almost a common link and common thread in some of these uh, relationships that develop well, in the music. Exactly world. right. So many people, so many people will say like the first time they ever sang was in church. You know, you go on Sunday mornings and you're singing in the choir kind of thing. That was sort of a lot of people's very first exposure to music at all, you know, and then becomes a pop career later. So coming from Chattanooga in the Bible Belt, do you have any churched background? I am the son of a secular Jew and a devout atheist. So no, <laughs> not at all. You know, I, Boy, that's, ra that's rare in Chattanooga. Well, this is why I needed to, to be in a bigger city, Tim. That's why I had to go. You know, it was like, I loved it. It was great. Got to go. Um, Must have drove them mad to be down yeah, there. Well, you know, that's they. my dad got a job with the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, the, the New Deal yep. government utility down there. And he had, the, he was the last generation of people who had one job that he retired from, you know, he had one career, uh, worked for 33 years or something at the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, so it worked out great for him. He had a great time. But uh, for me, it was like, yeah, I needed something a little more cosmopolitan. 
that said, you know, when you grow up in the South, you're definitely around Southern gospel music, both uh, uh, European and African-American origin. So it's definitely in my DNA. I definitely have it, um, even though I wasn't uh, a regular attendee, although I would have, you know, loved to have gone to go see Al Green preach and sing in Memphis. You know, that would have been, that would have got sure. me to church every yeah. weekend, believe it. Yep. Yeah, and if uh, anybody hasn't been through Memphis, they ought to go through there just to see uh, Graceland. Oh, amazing, <laughs> amazing. Well, Gra- Graceland, yeah. the Stax Museum is amazing. The Sun yep. Records studio is amazing, and you can, you, know, you can catch Al Green preaching every Sunday if you want. You know, you get caught off guard by how small Sun Studios tiny, is. Tiny, tiny. You know, the storefront is just... You know, it's like a storefront. You have a reception area, and yeah. you go back in a room or something, and you got a control booth, and boom. The birth of rock and roll. Where everything happened, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The million-dollar quartet, as they say, uh, got their start. A hundred percent, you know. Yeah, tiny. So. It's from very, very, very humble means. But, you know, uh, I guess as the saying goes, it's the monkey, not the banana. Those guys had something to say, right. and they were going to say it on a out of a storefront or wherever. They were going to broadcast it from the rooftops, you know. So let me ask you, if you had to go back to a young Ivan, is there something you would recommend he do differently? That's so interesting, you know, because I have this sort of like philosophical long view that kind of where we are is sort of the sum of all of our experiences. So even the stuff that I did uh, that wasn't so much fun, you know, getting hazed in high school or whatever was probably gave me the drive to do what I do. So, you know, I don't know that I could have changed anything necessarily, um, you know, other than some very general advice, like, you know, you tell a young kid, like, don't worry so much. It's all, you know, it'll all be fine. It'll all work out. <laughs> you know, don't stress yourself out at, uh, at a too young of an age because there's plenty of time for that. When you play live, what amp do you use? Uh, I am endorsed by Hartkey. So I, okay. I use a Hartke 410 high drive. Usually, you know, for the for the humble pie rig, that was the big rig. So I had uh, two of those, so eight eight tens, and then the Hartke LH 1000 watt head on top of that. Oh man! Uh, they've got a new one that's coming out. I've just got to get is like one of those Plasti amplifiers. It's it's eight hundred watts. I think it weighs five pounds. Like I'm gonna have to possibly, you know, tape it to the top of the amp to keep it from rattling off. Um, but I've been using um, the Hartkey stuff live for many, many years, and then occasionally for my around town, if I'm if I'm, you know, taking a subway to the gig, I need something really light, really small, really portable. Uh, the Italian-made Mark Bass combo weighs 33 pounds and goes on a luggage cart. But most importantly, Tim, most importantly. It fits through the subway turnstile. There you go. <laughs> That's the, the limiting size factor on the amp is it fits through the turnstile, and that becomes like the New York City amp. I do have a car, and I do drive around New York City, but, you know, you don't want, if you have to go into Midtown during the day for anything, you don't want to drive. Take public transit. You know, considering how big New York is, and this would apply probably for San Francisco, LA at this point, because their subway system, and just about any major city that has a subway, there could be a real marketing push if a company would come up with a <laughs> turnstile compatible amplifier. Mark Bass has done it. I don't think they set out to do it. And, and, and P.S., you can't set it front ways on the amp. You have to turn it sideways 
on the luggage cart to get it to go through the turnstile. But if you turn it sideways, it goes right through the turnstile. Right through. And, you know, when I discovered that, <laughs> I said, good. that's the amp for me. That's the one right there. As far as recording, do you prefer software or hardware recording? Uh, these days, it's all software. That said, I came up through all the hardware in my life. You know, like I, I started out on analog boards and, and reel-to-reel tape, one-inch tape running 15 inch per second, you know, like the old, old analog stuff. Yeah, that's going way back. So when you hear that stuff and you're sort of like um, – indoctrinated with that sound quality you know you you have to understand what that sound is what it sounds like to then be able to transfer to a digital format and carry that tonal palette with you so now you know the stuff that you do digitally you have a much wider frequency range available to you that you can record in but you also have to understand the harmonic overtones that happen with uh, analog tube distortion you know what I'm saying? Like you have to understand yeah. distortion is your friend a certain amount. Like you don't want a bass that's super duper hi-fi, too too clean. It doesn't sit in the mix right. It feels too clicky. It doesn't feel round. It doesn't feel warm. It feels kind of you know sterile. But when you get it through a, a, a you know a, a Sans amp, you know Tech 21 tube simulator, and put that into a digital audio workstation, it's just it's beautiful. You know, it sounds perfect. So Ivan. This has been a wonderful discussion. Man, it's been my pleasure. I really have enjoyed this talking to you about every facet of the music business known to human being, I think. So how do people get in touch with you if they want to, or how do they follow oh, you? Oh, I can be found. My goodness, I'm easy to find. www.funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. All the links to all of my socials are there. The links to the book is there. The links to my music on Color Red Records is there. That one website will be your one-stop shopping for everything involving my career. And it'll tell you way, way more about my background than you ever wanted to know. Trust me. Well, I think that's a good thing, though, right? <laughs> maybe. 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 Perhaps I've that's... overshared. You'll have to be the judge of that yourself. Well, like I said, Ivan, it's been an amazing uh, discussion with you. I know that our fans, the people that listen, are going gonna, gonna to go check you out. I think the title of your book says it all. The takeaway, if if you had to sum up what we've done today, it's talking about the memoirs of a working class rock star, right? That's exactly it. You know, the, the title is very deliberate because that's how I look at myself. And, you know, I think everybody else would agree. Like, yep, that's what I do. I work for a living. I haven't talked with anybody that is out there gigging more than you up to this point. So... I'm going to bid you adieu. Thank you for being with us, Ivan. It's just been a complete pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This is a great format, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the next one. And that's our interview with Ivan Funkboy Bodley. Wasn't he interesting? I told you he would be. What a fascinating guy. And that music, I just love it. You can find everything about Ivan at his website. As he said, it's funkboy.net. Be sure to check that out, and also remember, he's got that book on Amazon.com. Am I famous yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. So, for Local Open Mic, I'm your host, Tim Heath. Remember, get up on the stage, step up to the microphone. The world is listening.